Okay. Before we start, big hello to Christian and Timony in Florida. I hope this message touches your heart. And now back to London. Okay. So we are... Um, and don't start bringing requests every week, all right? That was just... It was a one-off special. So, okay. We've started this series on wisdom. And... Um, I don't know if you remember last week, I said that wisdom, a wise life is a well-built life. You can't just, it's, it's not just about attaining different nuggets, you know, and pearls of wisdom and just pulling them together and saying, oh, now I can live a wise life. A, a, a wise life is a life that is well-built and well-proportioned. And in order to be well-built and well-proportioned, it has to be founded right. It has to have a right foundation. And we, last week we looked at the scripture, Psalm 111 verse 10, that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the foundation of wisdom. And after preaching that, I hadn't previously planned on doing it, crazy thing as it sounds, but it dawned on me, I need to just do a message for the week on the fear of the Lord. I've got to lay the foundation so we can build on it. So this whole, today I'm going to preach on the fear of the Lord, help you to hopefully understand what it is, and maybe a touch and taste something of that in your heart, hopefully, as we delve into the scriptures and just to, um, I think it's something that as a church we need to really get. I think the church in the West particularly needs to really understand what this is well. Um, not a caricature, a strange idea, but grasp scripturally, what is it to fear the Lord? I'm going to pray um, and ask God to help us in that. Father, we, I pray that uh, a genuine revelation of the fear of the Lord would come on us. Please, God, you would keep us from contrivances and just attempts, attempts at trying to make something happen. And instead, I pray for a revelation of your glory please, that you are other, that that would dawn on us by the Spirit. There would just be a sense of grasping and getting something of your awesome otherness. It would change us. It would change the way we are as people. I'm asking this earnestly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, It's a funny phrase, fear of the Lord. I think it comes across negative Fear, negative thing, generally speaking, and people can tend to think, man, I'm not sure I really want to get too into it. Um, But I will say this at the start. The fear of the Lord does involve dread. It does. If anyone tells you that the fear of the Lord does not involve dread, they're not telling you the truth. It doesn't only involve dread, but it does involve dread. In fact, in Isaiah 8, you can see that God says, "I I want to be your dread. You think, well, why does God say that? Well, he's speaking to people that are gripped with fear about invasion. They're, they're terrified of being invaded. And God says, instead of dreading them, dread me. Because that will deal with that dread. So it does involve dread. In fact, uh, Hebrews 10.31 says this, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The context is judgment. To stand before a holy and pure God, given our sinfulness, with nothing to cover us, it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. And the danger is, is, is that people wanting not to upset or offend or give the wrong idea will tend to <coughs> avoid this subject and these particular verses. But you end up with a truncated view of God. You end up with a, a wrong view of God, a caricature. And it's just, he ends up becoming the old man in the sky. Um, and then we wonder why we're not gripped with a sense of awe. You know? So it's just trying to, again, just give you some intro. Um, when Moses was with the people of Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and God descended on the mountain in his glory, and the people were terrified. Listen to what Moses says to them. He says, 
Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Moses says, don't fear the fear. Embrace the fear. There's a, God wants to show you his glory so you will fear him. Embrace that. Don't fear it. Don't run from that. Why? Because as you get the fear of the Lord, it will keep you from the thing that destroys your soul. Sin. The fear of the Lord, when properly grasped in your heart, will keep you from that thing, that power that pollutes and destroys your soul. 1 Peter puts it like this. He says, he says it talks about the, the lust of the flesh which wage war against our soul. Serious stuff. Remember, uh, in, the, in the morning service last week, I referred to uh, an older friend of mine, pastor, who, um, a moment of vulnerability, um, while his wife actually was off, uh, well, was, was in labour with their third child, and they, he was at home with two children, um, a female neighbour comes in to help out, and, and in, uh, takes initiative in trying to sleep with him. Um, he, was, he was in a, a, a vulnerable place. He said, the only thing that kept me from it was the fear of the Lord. Now, here's the thing, you see. When we're in a good place, all kinds of stuff can keep us from sin, right? Yeah? We're walking close with God, you know. Or we just, we're repelled by the thought, you know. Or we're just, we're, you know, we're, we're in a good place. There are other seasons where we're worn down, the pressure's on, you know, our reserves have been eroded, and we've got nothing left. At that point, you better have the fear of the Lord in your spirit. Because opportunities will come. And everything in you will cry out, oh, what the heck, and who's going to know? And if at that point you do not have a glorious view of God, it's so important. It's so important. Another thing about this is this whole idea of it, that you may not sin. It can, that can be misleading because it can make you think, so what we're saying is if I get the fear of the Lord, then I just won't do sins, right? So I won't sleep around and I won't get drunk and I won't... And, and it can become so prohibitive and narrow that that's, it's kind of like, well, that's my life. I'm the guy who doesn't do things. Yeah? I'm the guy who doesn't get drunk. I'm the guy who doesn't smoke splits. I'm the guy who doesn't swear. I'm the guy who doesn't... Yeah, yeah. And it's like, man, that's not exactly inspiring, is it? How do we work through this? Well, you're talking there about sins of commission, things you do that you shouldn't do. But what about sins of omission? Things we don't do that we should do. You should live a life of radical adventure with God. The fear of the Lord will keep you from not doing that. Yeah? You should live a life of believing God for the impossible. The fear of the Lord will keep you from not doing that. You should live a life of radical love. The fear of the Lord will keep you from not doing that. And so it's not just the, the fear of the Lord doesn't just keep you from those certain things you know you shouldn't do, but it liberates you into doing those things that we should be doing for the glory of God. So already we're seeing, oh, this is a good and a positive thing. Jesus puts it like this, Matthew ten twenty eight: Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, face value, pretty harsh. <laughs> you think, man, alive, you know, who's he talking about? The devil, no, God. He's not talking about the devil at the end there. This one who can destroy both soul and body in hell is God. You think, man. But as you investigate it closer, it becomes really, really quite good. In what sense? In the sense that this verse tells me that if I really get the fear of the Lord, I will not fear other people. I won't fear their opinions. I won't fear their malice. I won't fear their intimidation. I won't fear their... Um, perception of me, I will be walking free. Does that sound nice? Yeah. Yeah. Fear of the Lord. It's a good thing. 
So much so that King David puts it like this in the Psalm 2. He says, serve the Lord with fear, okay, and rejoice with trembling. And so there's something of a, a trembling, but it's a rejoicing. It's kind of, it looks a bit weird. It's kind of, <gasps> it's kind of, I'm scared, but I'm really excited. What's going on here? What's going on is that we're seeing someone and we're being with someone who is very dangerous, but very safe. To really bring it down a thousand million degrees of glory, but to help you understand it, it's a bit like hanging out with Jason Bourne from the Bourne trilogy, right? Very dangerous. Any, anyone not seen the Bourne films? Okay, all right. All right. You lot. In a nutshell, in a nutshell, he's a bad man. You don't mess with the Bourne, all right? That's bottom line. But he's a goodie. Now, if you were Jason Bourne, right? You know he's dangerous. So you're like, what's going to happen next? But you're on his side. So you feel safe. You understand what I'm saying? When I first got saved, I, um, I wanted to start um, doing some boxing, just training, you know, uh, a couple of times a week. My friend said, yeah, come on, we'll go to Woolwich. I said, I can't go to Woolwich. Because I was only recently saved and there was a group of guys from Woolwich that really didn't like me and were actually after me. I thought, I can't go to Woolwich. And I thought to myself, but if Derek from my church came, I'd go to Woolwich. Why? Because Derek was an ex-boxer and he was huge. And uh, during various times of fun sports with Derek, uh, we were playing in a swimming pool, sort of, some sort of thing of trying to get a ball or something. And I remember sort of tossing with him thinking, like, I feel like a four-year-old. <laughs> you know, I'm 18, I feel like a 4 It's just huge. I thought to myself, if Derek will come, then I'll go. In the moment, I just felt God speak to me. But what about me? And it's like, oh, yeah. So I repented straight away. I said, I'll be there. I'm coming to Woolwich. Why? Derek's not with me, but the living God is. Yeah. See, it's the fear that will liberate you out of that kind of uh, dominating fear. Maybe, fear's the, maybe the word fear is the problem. Maybe, we'll go for, maybe reverence is a better word. Or awe. I looked those up in the dictionary to try and help us here. Um, I, I, I don't know that awe is that helpful because everything's awesome, isn't it? Everything's awesome. These cups of tea are awesome, aren't they? Awesome. Awesome. This is awesome. Oh, it's steep, but it's not awesome. Everything, especially Rich, everything's rich. Everything. Everything he has, awesome. How's your weekend, Rich? Awesome. Oh, what happened? Nothing. Do you want sugar in your coffee, Rich? Awesome. It's so rich. It's so rich. I looked up in the dictionary, and all, all says... Awe says to stand in reverential wonder. So I thought, great, reverential, reverence. Looked up reverence, it said awe. I thought, oh, I ran in a circle. Looked up wonder, that was helpful. An emotion excited by what is unexpected. God is always unexpected. He never changes, but he's always unexpected. Unfamiliar, he's incredibly unfamiliar. If you ever get familiar with him, you've missed him. You can know him, but there's always that sense of, he's an eternal mystery. Or inexplicable. Absolutely. Where do we see that kind of awe or reverence, that sense of excited emotion by that which is unexpected, unfamiliar, inexplicable? I think we see it primarily in the way we respond to celebrities. That's where you see it. Some symptoms of how we respond to celebrities in our culture. Some people tremble. I spoke to people like that. They said, I saw someone, I went, oh, it's all funny. My breathing went all funny. Other people shout. Nah! <laughs> yeah? Other people 
are just very, very highly aware of the presence of the person. You're out for a restaurant, having, at a restaurant having a meal, you see someone famous over there. It's like, for the next two hours, you're like, oh, what are they having? Oh, very aware of their presence. What else? Some of you are thinking, oh, yes, yeah, it's me. What else? Act unusually. They spoke to me, and I don't, they said to me, how are you doing? I said, I like chocolate. I don't know why. It just, it just came out. There's a sense of acting unusually, surprising. Perhaps most insightfully, obedience. In what sense? Well, we obey their haircut or their clothing. In what sense? We copy. Obedience is about copying. When God says, obey me, he's saying, copy me, be like me. Let me just say this. It is good to tremble in the presence of God. It is good to shout, whoa, in the presence of God. It is good to be highly aware of the presence of God. Can't take my eyes off him. He's here. He's with us. It is good to act unusually around him at times. I don't know what came over me. I just couldn't stop myself jumping. It's fine. It's fine. And it's great to copy and obey him. See, it's the fear of the Lord. That's what we need restored into our hearts. Because we're made to worship, we'll find, we'll find someone else to hold in reverence if it's not God. It should be him. Let's turn to 2, 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible with you, we'll come up here, but let's turn to it anyway. It's too small to read. So, uh, <laughs> I did that deliberately. So you turn to it in your Bibles. Our teacher. We'll read the first half of the story. Just to give you a bit of background, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant today. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was a box. It symbolised um, the presence of God. Inside the box was the tablets of the Ten Commandments, some manna in the jar to remember God's miraculous provision to the Israelites, Aaron's special rod that had miraculously budded, even though it wasn't connected to a tree. And these things were kept inside as a memorial of God's dealing with, dealings with his people. Um, and so, and, and, and what happened was, was that it would, it would live in the midst of the camp of the Israelites. And then at one tragic point in their history, they, they sent the ark in, into battle, um, but they weren't walking with God. They sent it in almost like a mascot. Well, well, the ark's gone, it'll be okay. But they actually weren't walking with God. And so they'd, it'd become like a superstitious thing. As a result, they were defeated, and the Philistines took the ark away into their nation. Wherever the ark went in their nation, there was plagues and <laughs> diseases and judgments. And so they sent the ark back. And then for, for generations it had lived in, it lived in a guy's house. And so now David is in a position where he wants to restore the ark, the presence, into Jerusalem now that he's become king. So that's where we're at. bit of context for you. Uh, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new car and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacom, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
So David was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So a troubling story in many ways. Um, it seems like a problem because you think, actually, they're, they're, they're doing a good thing. Their heart is just get the ark into the city. Uzzah? I mean, Uzzah's the kind of guy you want on your team. Am I right? You know, he's, he was there. The, the, the oxen are stumbling. The box starts to topple. Yeah, he's there. He's this kind of good guy. And God strikes him down. And David is angry, first of all. He's, he's freaked out. What's going on? And then fearful, I can't do this. And what happened in this story? Is there an explanation for it? Yes, there is. And I'm going to give you the explanation now. Because as, on a closer inspection of this story, what is revealed is a carelessness in, in the whole operation that exposes a lack of the fear of the Lord. There's no real sense of, oh God, there really isn't. And I'll, I'll, show, you, um, I'll show you this Firstly, let's have a look at the picture of the ark here um, on the slide. So the ark, you've got this box with the, the cherubim on top. And then notice, um, should I have a stick or something, shouldn't I? <laughs> but you've got this ring there and this ring. So there was kind of four rings, two on each side with these poles going through it. They're very important because we're going to just read um, Exodus 25, 12 to 15. It says this. This is when God's giving Moses the details of how to make the ark of the covenant, the box. He says, you shall cast four rings of gold for it. Put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side like we saw. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And then uh, later on in Numbers we find this. This is interesting because there's wagons, there's carts involved here. Okay? Four wagons and eight oxen. He, that's Moses, gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So these sons of Merari, they're, 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 they're helping out to pack up the tabernacle, the tent. So they get given these oxen and these wagons to put all the cloth from the, from the tent, the tabernacle, and transport it. But to the sons of Kohath, he gave no wagons, no carts, no oxen, because they were charged with the service of the holy things, things like the Ark of the Covenant, that had to be carried on the shoulder. So, what we're seeing here, going to the next slide, is that's how you carry the ark. Okay, clearly prescribed, Exodus 25, number 7. It's there, in the scripture, these guys would have had this written down. Okay, that's how you do it. God has said, that's how you carry it. You don't touch it, you don't stick it on a cart, even if it's a new one. So, what we find is going on in this story, is that there's something which is scripturally clear. God has said, do it this way. Um, but in the hearts of these guys, they didn't, they didn't look into it carefully. They didn't consider, does God have an opinion on this? There was a casual, almost pragmatic, wow, stick it on a cart, it's quicker. Yeah, make it a new cart. God will, God will love that. It's new, shiny. Kind of pragmatic. But presumptuous, actually. Why? Well, because in their hearts, what they're saying is this. God will accommodate to the way we want to do it. I'll say that again. God will accommodate to the way we want to do it. No, he won't. He won't accommodate to the way you want to do it. If he has made it clear, he wants to do it another way. 
It's this is, I mean, you might say, well, come on, this is elementary. This is huge. This is huge. Because the way you respond to scripture is a, a very significant indicator of whether or not you fear the Lord. What's written? What's he said? And so often, as a pastor, you meet people say, I know it says that, but it felt so right. I know it says I shouldn't do that, but it felt so right. What's happening there? What's happening there is someone is saying, I know that God has revealed this is wrong, but I'm actually, I'm actually going to submit to the authority of my own internal moral compass. Dangerous ground. I know God said that, the God who knows all things and flung the stars into space and knows them by name and who upholds the whole universe by his powerful word and who knows all things and knows the inner workings of every situation and every heart and whom nothing is hidden from. But you know what? I just feel this was so right. Oh, do you? (laughs) Well, you are so wrong. You are so desperately wrong. And you really, you really cannot successfully travel down that road. It will end in tragedy sooner or later. Obedience is massive. Now at this point someone might say, oh, I, thought we had, I thought we were into grace. <laughs> this whole covenant law, we're into grace. Surely obedience doesn't quite matter so much under grace. Let's just understand grace for a minute. Obedience is very important. Grace reveals the importance of obedience. How? Well, because grace reveals the importance of disobedience. How? By the cross. Christ is on the cross crucified because of your and my disobedience. It's pretty important. It's a pretty big deal. Disobedience led to the death of the Son of God. It's huge. God cannot just overlook it like you and I do. You might, sometimes I think we think to ourselves, why can't God just be a little more flexible, be more lenient, like I am? Someone does that, I just overlook it. It's different. Why is it different? It's different because you overlook it because you're probably hoping that way then my things will get overlooked too. Yeah? If I overlook it, that's cool because then the thing I did the other day, that will, yeah, and then we've got, something, we've got some bartering material going on here. Yeah? Why? Because we sin as well. God doesn't sin. And he struggles immensely with sin. He hates sin. He hates it. And so disobedience led to the cross. Why? So that our debt could be paid at the cross, so that we could get to start a brand new life living under grace. Now what does living under grace look like? It looks like this. You're no longer under debt. You haven't got to try and make your own way with God. Pay your debts off. Pay him back. Hallelujah. The debt is wiped clean. Alright, so you start on a wonderful place walking with him. But then he says this, I want to teach you how to trust me. Obedience is all about trust, proper obedience. God is not looking for slavish, legalistic obedience. Sometimes when we tell our children, myself and Davina, to do things, they go, oh, I'm coming for them. And all of they do it like that. And we call them back and we say, sorry, that's not good enough. You know, well, it's obedience, Steph. They were going to do it. Why isn't it good enough? Here's why it's not good enough. It's an obedience rooted in mistrust. In what sense? In the sense they're thinking, they're thinking in their head, well, I know best, but I've got to do it because they're the parent. So we need to come back and say, actually, you know, you need, really need to realise that we know better than you. <laughs> we know better than you. Not many settings I can say that confidently, but with a six-year-old I can. <laughs> we know better and we talk it through. Because why? Because when they walk off and obey happily, I know they've got it. 
I know that at that point they're trusting that it's best to do it our way. That is the trust that God is looking for. The Bible calls it the obedience of faith. It's when you go, oh yeah, of course, God, absolutely. And it's your delight to obey him. That's the grace life. That is the, that's the Jesus Christ life. It's the Christ life flowing through. That's what Jesus was like. Totally obedient to the Father, the happiest man to have ever lived. Yeah? That's what he's after. You're very quiet. It's either because you're asleep or sober, but I'm going to just go for the sober and keep going. Okay. Um, is it very hot in here? Classic. Okay, fine. If it is, take your jumper off. Okay, right. Um, I want to just say a few words about things. So what, what for us are issues of, do we put it on the cart or do we carry it on the shoulder? The way we do things as a church. Is that okay? Just to bring a few practical things along. Just to help us. Well, you know, because there's a lot of flexibility in, the, in, in terms of the way we do church. God is really happy for different cultures to express their culture in the way they praise and worship him. God is happy for different music styles, that kind of thing. It's, never, it's not prescribed in scripture in any way. That's really cool. Um, Dress-wise, as long as we're modest... We're not drawing attention to ourselves in an unhelpful way, in a way that will cause someone else to fall into lust or to stumble. As long as we're not doing that, we're free to dress as we please. I mean, there's a lot of movability in the way that we do things. Man-made traditions like, you must wear Sunday best, um, you must have organ music. Organ music's fine, but when it's compulsory, it's a problem. Um, You must, when you pray, you've got to change your voice. (laughs) That is all God... I tell you, praise God, praise God, that stuff is almost gone, except for Louis. Uh, the, 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 here's the one, here's the one, here's the one, you must read the King James Bible. Oh my goodness. Let me just say, let me just help you, if this is you. The original New Testament was written in street Greek. Why? So that the common person could understand it. The King James Version of the Bible was written in the 16th century in the language, everyday language, that people used in the 16th century. We no longer use that language. Okay? So to try to give it some kind of spiritual uh, property, the Old English is deception, is nonsense, do not do it, steer away from it, you find someone banging on at that one, graciously ignore them. It is unhelpful in the extreme. You want to understand your Bible. I mean, really, that is a pretty obvious statement. Okay? So all that's, forget that. And you will find people, you will find people going to the, going to the stake for the King James. It's crazy. It really is. And if you're listening on the internet and you're trapped in this, please, please walk away from that kind of deception. It's utterly legalistic and terrible. Amen. so there's flexibility however there are areas where we have absolutely no room to innovate none on the authority of scripture we have no room to innovate we can't just have a bit of this no it is the word of God on the gospel we don't just dumb down things that might upset that person or oh they're over there we'll keep quiet on that no we will not do that it's God's gospel it's the perfect salvation message we will boast in this gospel right we don't we don't have any right to just adapt it emphasize certain things or or we don't have any we've been entrusted with it we're to be faithful stewards with it which means passing it on accurately it's God's gospel it's not man's 
God's salvation message. The bread and the wine. We'll take the bread and we'll take the wine when we gather. And we'll do it till he returns. Why? Because he told us to. Believer's baptism. We seriously in earnest about that. All through scripture, everyone who got, got baptised, they got baptised because they believed in Jesus. Amen. These things are important. These things are ever so important. We can't just, we can't just adapt with, you know, oh, people are saying this now. Okay, well, we'll just do that. No. Let them say it, for goodness sake. They'll be saying something else six months later. It's nonsense. Just shifting sand of popular cultural opinion that has got no substance at all. And, we won't, and, and if you give it substance, I tell you what, it will come back and it will bite you and you wish you hadn't. We give the word of God substance. Money. Other areas of life. Financial integrity. Huge deal to God. He's got very strong feelings about greed. He's got very strong feelings about the love of money. It's his money, not yours. Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us clearly, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. It's all his. It's all on loan. Financial integrity. You do not have, you do not have the right before God to, to, to fiddle around with your taxes or to just, well, we'll just put the thing around the side there or to hold up for yourself. It's sin. It's folly. I'm just touching the stuff that we'll do whole sessions on, but I'm just trying to throw some seeds out. Sexual purity. It's a tragedy when the society shapes the church on this one. Big cities of the world celebrate sexual freedoms. Do what you like. It's all part of being diverse and blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of like, well, it's your life. No, it's not. No, it isn't. Life is not a right. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's his life. You can't just, no, it's not. And it's not private. God has the royalties on sex. He created it. He gets to say how it gets used. You can't just innovate. Well, would it? No. No. God has made it clear. It's all clear and it's all in his word. To move with the shifting culture on this one is insulting to God, blasphemous and demonstrates a complete lack of the fear of the Lord. To push the boundaries as a believer. To play with fire. To place yourself in compromising situations. It's out of order. It's really out of order. Instead, we're to keep ourselves holy and pure. If I'm married, then celibate. If married, entirely faithful to our spouse. As it says in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? What an honour. What an honour. You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Context of that is sexual purity. Authority is another area. How do you relate to authority? Bosses, parents, police. To disregard and disrespect such people is to pour scorn on the wisdom of God. Why? Romans 13 verse 1 tells us clearly. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now there are exceptions where you have to resist for certain reasons, but the early church gives us, gives us the key on this. The man who wrote this was living under the Roman Empire. You want to talk about oppression? You want to talk about injustice? The man who wrote this was living in that setting, and he says, submit to them. The early church did not make it their mission to topple the Roman Empire. They made it their mission to preach the gospel, like yeast in the loaf, and in the end, after a couple of centuries, bang, it went through the whole empire. Very important. Back to the story. We're going to finish now. 
Okay, verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I want to pull out a few things here. Firstly, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark, it was no longer a cart, it was four guys. Hallelujah. They'd gone back. David said, look, we did it wrong that time. Let's go. Go back to the scriptures. What's the score? Oh, there it is. Exodus 25. Oh, number seven, right. That's what those poles are for. <laughs> we wonder what those poles are for. That's what they're for. You carry the thing on the shoulder. Okay? There they are. Those who carried it. Hallelujah. So what they're doing? They're doing according to the scripture. Fear of the Lord is being re-established and they're operating according to scripture. Next. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, every six steps, David stopped and sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. What's going on here? The fear of the Lord. It doesn't tell them anywhere they should be doing this, but there is suddenly a certain weight, <laughs> a certain care that David is expressing. It's like, you know what? Just in case. <laughs> that is good. That is very good. There's no longer that sense of, well, of course he'll be right. He's God. He's all right. He's, he's, he's good like that. No, that whole attitude has been completely uh, ejected from them through what happened. It's like, man, it's the living God. Remember, as a, we'll just have an hour. We'll just stop and, okay, it's all good. Lord, we love, honour you. Okay, move on. Just six. No, not eight even, just do six. <laughs> you see that? It's the fear of the Lord. It's good. I said over the top. Okay, all right. It's good though. Sober. But it's not heavy. David danced before the Lord with all his might. Now the charismatic church often gets slated by the, those churches who don't like clapping and dancing and singing. And they say something like this. Oh, I wish they were more reverent. All that clapping and dancing. <laughs> There it is. There it is. Here is reverence, the fear of the Lord, and he's dancing with all his might. Hallelujah. We must not submit to the, to the definitions of man. Well, you're not reverent. You're not, you're not standing still in a suit. Look, you can stand still in a suit and be reverent. Okay? You can dance in a linen ephod and be reverent. Okay? Let us not judge by the outside. Let's judge by what's going on in the heart. Yeah, and you must have all freedom to express your worship before the Lord, as long as it is not unhelpful. Now, there'll always be someone who might find it unhelpful, but that's probably their problem more than yours, as we'll see in this story in just a moment. Okay? But there's that sense of where it's like, God, I'm going to just give you my all. That honours him. That honours him. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. There it is, and the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, yeah, I just want to say something on that because sometimes people will say, "We're going to shout and praise, and then we're going to be in awe." Now, look, <laughs> silence can be awe. Silence can be boredom. Shouting can be awe. Shouting can just be noise and fleshy. Okay, you can't categorize it by the external. They can both be awe. You understand? Yeah. It's about what's going on in the heart. 
As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, that's David's wife, looked out the window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. When the fear of the Lord is re-established, there's a blessing on the people of God. There's a blessing, a corporate blessing. They all go home with their nice, the king gave us a cake. You know, you know God's in his house. You know, it's just a, there's a corporate blessing. And then David returned to bless his household. He comes back, he wants to bless his wife. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honoured himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, here's the key, it was before the Lord. That's the key. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make myself, and I will make merry before the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. Can you say that? And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honour. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Final point, there will be satanic opposition, but it will bear no fruit. This is satanic. It's accusation. Satan is the accuser of the brothers. He'll accuse you. How can you dance and sing like that? Who do you think you are? Drawing attention to yourself and it'll all come. Blah, 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 blah. Even if it's not someone really saying it, as you give yourself to God, the thoughts start to come. Yeah? You've got to be like David. You say, I will make merry before the Lord. Yeah? yeah? I will. And even if I become even more contemptible in your eyes, so be it. And that accusation will bear no fruit. She remained barren to the day of her death. It's a picture of where that kind of spirit leads. It leads to barrenness. So, probably ready to worship and praise the Lord, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> great, great, great. I want to say one final thing to anyone here who's not born again. I want to just say this. You might think, man, yeah, this is good. I want to get the fear of the Lord. What do I do? What do I do? Well, what you don't do is start trying to do good things as the old you. You've got to be recreated. You've got to receive a brand new heart. You've got to be born again. Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you are born again. The way the Bible describes it is that heart of stone being taken out and the heart of flesh being put in. How does that happen? John 1 verse 12. To those who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Put your trust entirely in Christ. Believe in him as your all in all, your salvation, everything. Your rescuer, your debt payer, your ransom your healer, your salvation. Come to Jesus and let that blood which spilt from his veins as he hung on that cross for you, cleanse you from all sin. Let that blood cover you so that the Father can receive you cleansed, cleansed in the blood of Jesus. All your sins covered and washed away, righteous as a gift. That's what I would say to you. As you do that, as you do that, as you come and just cling to Christ, God will meet you there. And you'll never be the same again.